Welcome to Why We Do This, a podcast for and by performing artists. Find out more about our guests and about us at whywedothispodcast.com. Our guest today is very special to both of us. It's my mother, Patricia Wilma Criscow. And my grandmother, a.k.a. Grandma Pat or Grams with a Z. She's coming to us from Eugene, Oregon. She's a writer, thinker, playwright, recently published a book of short stories and poems and short plays. It's called Strange Sounds and Sweet Airs. It was so special to get to connect with her about what it means to live a creative life for your whole life. That looks really good. It's Julia Criscow, Pat Criscow, and Terry Criscow. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> All right. So our guest today is Patricia Wilmont Criscow, who is my grandma and your mom. That's right. Very <laughs> exciting. Um, we're so glad to have you here. Um, and I know that you have had a life in the arts, um, but... I guess where we'll start is how you identify today. Like if someone asks you, um, what do you do? How do you usually reply? Well, uh, I'm a writer right now, short stories and plays. Mm -hmm. Thinking about another play right now, but um, I've just published a little book of short stories and so forth. And then basically I'm a scholar, a student all my life. And that goes along with working on anything. I just research everything. So it's all true, authentic. Yeah. I love that about being an artist is just the the impetus to research and learn. Yeah, well, you have to. Through the lens of whatever you're yeah. working on. Yeah. And it's not just period goals. It's, it's anything. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Absolutely anything you do. No. So when did that uh, begin for you, the the writing, identifying yourself as a writer? When did that start for you? Well, I, I wanted to, uh, everything I saw as a child, I thought was very poorly written. Uh, the movies, especially. And it was so corny and obvious. So I wanted to write, rewrite the movies I saw. Mm. And then I just got so interested in writing but, but primarily it was wanting to be an actress and to uh, sing. And I had a, a really uh, good voice from a young age, very young. I mean, I yeah. sang in church at two. Amazing. Uh, I stood on the church altar and sang um, Away in the Manger. Hmm. I was nervous, but I, I did it, you know. And then, um, but I, we've always sung the whole family. And uh, you don't, when you're Swedish, you don't even need to learn harmony. You just know it. You know? That's how I feel. Yeah. Do you? Yeah, it's you interesting. You sing harmony without studying? Yeah. And I actually remember you came over once, I think I was like eight or 10, and you how old noticed were you then? eight or, or 10, uh-huh. something like that. And you heard me singing along to something, and you were like, "Oh, you're singing the harmony. That's so nice." And did you <laughs> and I was know? Like, oh. Did you know you were singing? I don't think I realized that it was the harmony. So it's nice to hear that it's uh, in my blood. It's a good thing that my daughter 
uh, here got that year because <laughs> I didn't. Yes, you did. <laughs> you sing. You sing beautifully. You do. I sing beautifully. But you... I do. But that's not the main focus of our conversation, unless we want to make it that. But, <laughs> but I, what I, mean I is, didn't bring it no, up. No, no. <laughs> My interviewer brought it up. My interlocutor, I, whatever. I, um, <laughs> no, I just remember like uh, being delighted also when I learned that uh, Julia had this natural ability to hear things and parts and instruments within songs, and so it's it's great. And I think that comes directly for for you. From you. So it's nice to know that it's carried on. And Julia has a beautiful voice, too, which doesn't hate. It shouldn't hate to have a beautiful voice. Yeah. (laughs) It sure doesn't. Well, okay, so in terms of writing, though, when when did you write your first, like, fully formed piece? Fully formed? Yeah. Oh, I, I was crazy about poetry, too. So I wrote a lot of poetry when I was young, yeah. uh, say from, you know, from zero to 50. <laughs> and then I got more into um, dramatic stuff because I've always leaned toward uh, the theater and wanting things to be translated onto the stage hmm. because that is the most thrilling thing no matter what you do, whether it's a prop or a costume or anything, or, you know, lines, is to see your work have validity on the stage. It's such a big transition. You might think something looks beautiful, but if it isn't well designed, you can't even notice it. Yeah. So when did you write your first play? In 19... Well, I started... Isabel, when I first researched it, which is, it came on me, that was about a woman who was uh, imprisoned in a cage for a long time. And I have a big thing about prisons and being locked in. And I think it has to do with an accident I had as a child when I was hurt in an elevator. And then uh, it was awful. I mean, that stayed with me the rest of my life. So I hear anything about a cage. And this is an old kind of elevator where you have to push the door open like that. Yeah, so it, it was very. Uh, it just brought it right back. So I went ahead and researched her for years, years and years. But I was working, and I had children, and I really didn't have the time. So I just dedicated a certain time every night to write. And then um, eventually, when I retired, I had it all ready, and I was ready to go to Scotland and places like that. Which I, wow. yeah, where I got the really good, you know. I got the dirt on her. <laughs> and then um, and then I came back and I tried five different times to write the whole play. And uh, it's just hard, you know, it's really, really hard to write. Yeah. yeah. Well. Mom, was the, um, the boy in the boom room, right? And wasn't that before? Isabel? No, it was very early. I experimented uh, with a lot of stuff. Yeah, yeah. I have all kinds of really half-baked things that I did, and they all looked multifaceted. Everything was divided. So it looked like a screenshot, you know, and, my, and nobody said they could, how could you work with that? I mean, there's too many characters. But that's the way I was seeing things, through that kind of a lens for a long time. And then, and then 
I can say that you, it's you, right? Yes. <laughs> you were the one who set me straight on all of that stuff. Yeah. You said, no, you just got to, you know, you got to get it out there right away and not play all these games with faith of the people and cross lines and everything. Yeah. Yeah. I want to just highlight Isabella for a moment because that was a, that woman, her punishment for what she did was to be hung. So suffice it to say, she was admitted to a cage for an indefinite period of time, felt maybe until she died. And it was eight by eight, and they hung it over the castle wall, and there was a thing called, it was like a little ledge, you know, where the, where the soldiers walked, and that's where they put her cage. So you had to go up in the tower and walk around on this thing. So the friars had to, to get her food or anything, had to come down this long, narrow thing to feed her. And then somebody who was actually English, was kind of like her caretaker. And he was assigned to, um, to, to get her out. And so, um, of course, she didn't trust anybody or know who anybody was. The person who left alone all that time, but eventually convinced her that he, uh, even though he was English, that he was her caretaker. And he undid the thing, and then a, a monastery, she was put in a monastery in a cell, but they were nice to her. And then her biggest concern was, <laughs> even when she first went in, this, this monk went over to her and wasn't treating her very nicely, and she said, will you hear my confession? This is what people in those days took as the most important thing, that they were religious. Everybody was religious. Will you hear my confession? Well, it's remarkable that you wrote about a woman in that situation back so far in history and brought it forward for other people to learn about. It's very germane to today, I think, uh, symbolically, metaphorically, you know, maybe even uh, literally. So. I think that's, uh, it's remarkable, and I'm glad we got a chance to highlight that uh, today. Well, precisely. That's why I write about women. Almost always write about women. I think what, one thing we're wondering about is, um, first of all, it, it's amazing to me that you self-published a book. I know you had help, but, but still, like that's an amazing um, achievement in this year of your life. And... Um, Julia and I both really love mm -hmm. the book. <laughs> yeah. Um, and I've told you, uh, you know, about it. Um, is there something that you have in mind to do uh, next, uh, um, having just published the book as a writer? I mean, is there yes, something? Yes, I'm you're already working on, or... on a novel, oddly enough. I've never written a novel. And I don't, I probably, I just, you know, it's, it's problematical when you're 90, you're just not sure, you know. I want to stay alive till the, till the election. That's what I'm focusing on. But in the, uh, in the meantime, I have to have something creative to do. So I'm, yeah. I'm going, I've started already, I wrote to Mark Chabot, who is the curator for the Van Vleck uh, art, and he really is knowledgeable. Um, and I, I have this because she was Natalie Van Vleck, the founder 
of uh, Flanders Nature Center, Flanders being the name of the road that it went by. Right, and, and is uh, that where you lived? Is that the house that? Remember the house where I lived? Yeah, that was her house, and she was a most amazing person. And she was she studied with the Cubists. She was very early Cubist and abstractionist, but she let go of all her art after 1934. She started in the 20s. And she stopped it. And then we unearthed it all and brought it back to the light when I worked there. But she stopped painting in 1934. And nobody could figure it out. She was so good. She built her own studio. And uh, some of it has to do with her parents. She didn't get along with her parents at all. And they were not approving. And there's another reason, and I'll tell you about that in a minute. But her father was, a, you know, her mother was a Macy. And her father was a financier. Right. And so much money. They got through the Depression without any trouble, if you can imagine. And he was uh, disparaging of the kind of artist. You know, he wanted to be an artist. And he didn't like what she did. So he said, when you sell a painting, you're an artist. Her mother said, she was very masculine. She said, you have no sex. Natalie. They both told her. And um, and after they died and she took off, but she took off the farm. She she bought a herd of sheep, a flock of sheep. She got a turkey from a turkey shoot and she decided she was gonna grow turkeys. She built a refrigerated area in the basement and produced them and sold them all in the United States. Kept them frozen and, you know, that kind of thing. She had all kinds of gardens. Um, and then she established this bought property all over the place. And then when she died, she willed the whole thing to this one group of people who supported her. So what I want to do is, uh, are you familiar with the term romantic play? And that's the English way of pronouncing it, the French term. It means that you take a very famous or well-known event, and then you put layers and layers of fiction over it. And it's it's legitimate, though I'd have to get the approval of these people. So I want to explore the fact that she was a lesbian, that she, um, that she was so graceful. There's a picture of her tending her sheep, and she's got her feet in the second position. And she's feeding the sheep. Gorgeous. In front of that uh, 1740 house. Well, I think she was, uh, I don't even know if she was frustrated. She had a lot of models. <laughs> and, uh, she said they were, this one and appeared over and over was her housekeeper. And they spent a wow. lot of time at night in the studio. <laughs> and she does have some really interesting abstract news because she got into abstract art after that. And they're not, you know, I won't say they're impolite, but they're pretty obviously, you know, being seductive and whatnot. So I might explore that the fact that it was stifled in her those times. We didn't talk about it unless she was very famous. And then, um, and then I just like to restore or redeem her in some way and bring that back. But it would wow. take a novel because she she was so um, so unusual and so 
Oh, oh my God. She can do anything she wanted to do once her parents died. What she did. What, what's striking me is how many ideas of yours sort of align around uh, images of, of birds and cages mm -hmm. and flights and women mm -hmm. and uh, freedom versus uh, 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 some kind of, if not incarceration, literally some kind of uh, imprisoning or self-imprisoning or something like that. Those, And I think the list of titles would be very revealing to know about well, that. And I'm not sure Julia has even read well, all of not them. All of them. They're in the uh, biographical sketch. They're in, there in the order they were written, but there's one left out, and that was a, a pretty bad play, but it was uh, called uh, Who's the Guy? And I got so right. much criticism on that, I just didn't even bother with it. But it's, you know, it's a, I was forcing a comedy because everybody said, Mom, you're so funny. Why don't you write um, a comedy? And I tried and tried and tried. But then I wrote the farce, and I love the farce. It's and so we great. Could, we yeah. could definitely expand on that. And, uh, you know, we just need a couple of really good actresses to make it put so much stick into it. And be oh, yeah. So good. I mean, you know, I wish you were a little older, Julia, because you could really. I, I will be. <laughs> I mean, I've during my lifetime, I'd like to see it. Uh, yeah, yeah, it's. it's so funny, and it really is the most camp thing I've ever done, because it, um, you know, and and the names of the anatomical parts just are all there. You'd be surprised how I much know. reference we have, and just endless puns. All so the puns. Fun. That was fun. So fun. Okay, I think I have one more question, if that's okay. Um, and that yeah. is around process, because I have recently started writing short stories that are loosely yep. based on my childhood. And Ooh. anyway, my question is, <laughs> um, when you like, you know, after that first sort of spark of inspiration, when you're like, okay, you read enough, you research enough, and then you start typing or writing. And then, you know, it becomes three in the morning and you have to go to sleep. Coming back to it, it, do you have a strategy for sort of like getting yourself back into the flow of writing? Or like, do you have a rhythm? Do you like to write in the morning? Are you, do you like to write at night? Oh, like, God, no. I'm not a morning person. I, my best time is three in the afternoon. And now I take a nap <laughs> that time. But it's, it's just my three and four. I, I was born in the afternoon. I don't know. I, I don't want to do anything. Every writer, you go, I get up at six and I go for a walk and I roll up my sleeves and I bleed. <laughs> you know, I just, oh my God. And they're so, uh, <laughs> you know, stuck on themselves, you know. But um, I don't know. About, I don't know about Yates, but Yates. <laughs> total, total favorite. And I have, don't want to know if he got up and rolled up his sleeves, but he is just so great. Sleeves? I would have loved to have some sleeves. We were so poor. <laughs> <laughs> well, anyway, um, where was I? Rolled up I just have a care. I think they're, they're so character driven that anything that character does, it stays in character. That's mm. the hardest thing anything does. Anybody does play or anything. 
after, if you lose your character, then you're done. You know, the whole, everything just falls apart. So mm-hmm. when you get back in the car or wherever it is you're going, you have to have something in mind that the character is going to do or say or think about or dream, mm-hmm. you know. And dreams, oh, my God, are they important. Uh, but um, you, know, you have to know your character. That's what helps you to the next phase. And if you start writing and you think, wait a minute, you know, this nothing, I'm the best Then you don't, you don't go there. Also, I read it over again and kind of get to that point where I'm going to go. And the most important thing I can tell you about any kind of fiction, and I've heard this from a lot of fine uh, writers, never start with the sky with blue, the flowers were fighting, and the, and the geese flew overhead, and we knew it was <laughs> none of that. It's just, it puts people to sleep. And then I'm not, I haven't told you anything about my work when I was making props and and costume accessories and years and years and years from the, uh, from the very end of the 40s to the late part of the 60s. You're making props mostly and, for theater, uh, right? Yeah, only for theater. I didn't do any mm-hmm. movies. And it was the best, it was the best work ethic anybody could develop because when you work in theater, and I don't have to tell you, Carrie. <laughs> It, you you work so freaking hard. You never, you know, the show is not over till the show till the curtain goes up. It's unbelievable. You have to. I I got. I didn't sleep for nights. I didn't. I drank coffee. I drank too much. I didn't do drugs. A lot of people in show business do drugs, but I didn't. But I worked my butt off. And I didn't. And you don't always get recognized for it if you're backstage. No, not at all. <laughs> you get yelled at quite a bit. <laughs> oh, and you yelled at, yeah, yeah, yeah. And but it's um, really true. There's, there's nothing like that. Nothing. Nothing like that that I've ever done either. And I've worked a lot. When we were in Wichita, you had put on a show. Yeah. I don't even remember the name of it, but you put on a show, and um, you came back and you were sitting like this. <laughs> And I cheer just like this. And I said, what's the matter? And you said, I have never worked so hard in my life mm. to come away with so little. Mm. You didn't, you see, everybody wants to be acknowledged. Every artist, whether yeah. it's paint or dance, anything, they want people to say, well, that's not just interesting or something like that. They want to hear, they want their input. Is there something you didn't like? You don't have to talk to the television. You don't have to say, well, geez, that was good. (laughs) You don't have to do that. You just sit there, you know, and drink your beer or whatever, and um, or popcorn, and and just, you know, you're just being entertained, entertained all the time, and nobody has an attention span. I swear, the kids have an attention span of maybe three or four minutes, and they're looking somewhere else off the something. So this is, um, there's a lot good about the internet and computers, but there's a lot that sort of sapped our enthusiasm, I think, too. Yeah, I really miss uh, a live theater thing. I, I'm still working with lots of people in this format, as Julia is, and, and it's great to keep it going, but man, there's just nothing like that 
playing an audience as an actor or watching your audience when you've directed something. There's just, it's something magical in a room that's invisible that everybody knows and we all agree to and we all do it. And that, um, you know, I, uh, a lot of theater people are feeling the lack of that right now. That's for sure. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But hopefully we'll get it back. You know, this has been great, uh, mom. Yeah. Really great. Beautiful. I will say that, uh, thank you for paving the way for myself and other women to be have a voice and to be able to be artists and be taken seriously because mm, thank you it's because of you well, it's a lot of fun especially since it was two people i love so much <laughs> yeah. I, you know what to expect from me and um, and the only thing terry wanted me to include is my latest observation about me being 90 uh for the last five years i haven't taken any risks no risk and everything to admire about all the people we're talking about is the risks that we took, mm. they took in their life. And I said to Terry, uh, um, for the last five years, I haven't done anything more dangerous than uh, wear white and drink grape juice. <laughs> <laughs> and wearing white and uh, drinking grape juice might just be the name of this podcast. <laughs> and then the other thing is i want to leave you with start with action okay keep your character no matter what okay even if you're hurt wounded you say a little something you know like in in henry the fourth is the part one where the guy falstaff well as he's dying he says something funny you know, uh, yeah. because he's his character. He can't stop being the clown. So that's right. Or Mercutio's death. You're reminding me of Mercutio's death. Who in that Romeo? You mean Mercutio? Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. What does he say? I don't. I don't want to misquote it on the air here, but it's uh, about the wound is neither as wide as a church. That's door. church door. Yeah, yeah. 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 Oh my God. Uh, Tis not so deep as a well, nor so wide as a church door. Yeah. The yeah. scratch she's yeah. talking about. Yeah. Yeah, I take that both ways, though. I keep it as very sad. I actually played Mercutio last last year, and we I played it pretty serious because he's he's saying oh. that it's just a scratch. But then he says, but it is, tis enough, we'll serve. Yeah, we'll serve. Oh, God, yeah, yeah that's so sad. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, that's typical, the irony of his way of putting things together. Oscar Wilde lying on his deathbed with his best friend, and he calls, and in the moment before he dies, he comes and asks his friend to lean down, and the friend leans down, and Oscar Wilde says, either that wallpaper goes, or I do. <laughs> <laughs> and then he died. <laughs> now I've heard I've heard a lot of different versions of that, but I believe that that is a true story. <laughs> I've been trying to make up something like that. If you guys get there before I die, and I thought one thing I might say is uh, this bus never this number five this bus doesn't go to the beach. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. Uh, well, thank you for your reaction to my humor. I mean, that's one thing that gets a rise out of people. <laughs> I know. <laughs> I know. All right. You are a treasure. Thank you so much. <laughs>
Well, I got to talk more than I usually do. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, in this format, anyway. Because, uh, yeah. The kids, the grandkids, usually when I start, they roll their eyes. Uh, hear of course. About the fifth century, you know, that kind of stuff. But it's, so it was very, um, <clears throat> very kind and generous of you to give me so much faith. So, yeah, this has been very nice, Julia, Terry. Uh, thank you. All right. I love you, Mom. We love you. Yeah, love you soon. Okay. Okay. Be well, for God's sake. Put your masks on wherever you go. Yes. We will. Okay. Okay. Love you so much. Goodbye. Bye. 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 That was my grandma, Patricia Wilmot Criscal. Thank you so much, Grams. We love you so much. Thank you, Mom. And you can learn more about our guests and us at why we do this podcast.com. <laughs>